It is our joy once again to work through this wonderful passage that speaks of the shepherd's relationship with his sheep, the one true shepherd and the one true flock. Let's read it together. John 10, verses 16 through 21. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father." There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Father, we ask that you would, in fact, bless the reading of your word as we have, even in this moment, tempted to consume the truth of your heart as you've given it to us. We pray also that you would bless the proclamation of your word, that it would sink deep down into the crevices of our souls, and that we might be changed by it today. Lord, we ask for those who are lost sheep in our midst, that today they'd be found, and that it would be the power of the work of your word given to those who, in fact, have been given the privilege and the ability to hear the voice of the shepherd. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So last week, we said specifically, and we pick up with this statement today, we'll see the one good shepherd leads, saves, and separates his sheep with his word so that we will listen and obey his word. In a sense, what we're saying is that as we observe the reality that the one true shepherd gives truth to those to whom he has given the ability to receive that truth, if we are among them, if we are of his sheep, if we are his sheep, we will be inclined to do that. We are also called to obey him by doing that. So it's not only something that he has given the gift of to those whom he has saved, it is a command to engage in it, it's a command to be obedient. Our point last week was the one good shepherd, by his voice, will lead and save all the sheep and will be heard and followed by all the sheep. And so we spent most of our time, in fact, I think we spent all of our time dealing with the reality that in the first few verses of this chapter, Jesus is talking about Israel. He came unto his own, his own rejected him for the sake of creating jealousy in their hearts, according to Romans 9, 10, 11. He went to the Gentiles. And so we broke that down, uh, as I said, spending nearly all of our time pointing to the reality that he came to the Jews, but he is not the Lord of the Jews. He's the Lord of his sheep. He's not simply the Lord of Israel. He's the Lord of the Gentiles. Which Israelites? Which Gentiles? All those for whom he died, every single one of them, all of those that the Father has given to him, every single one of them. No one that the Father has given to him will not come unto him. Those are his words. 
This morning, we want to look at this reality, point two, that the one good shepherd, by his authority and by his own willful obedience, does what he does. And what is it that he does? He lays down his life and raises it up. We'll talk about the purpose for that, what that looks like in Scripture. For whom did Christ give his life in his authority and in his obedience? Verse 18 says, no one takes it from me. No one takes it from me. Legal authorities, governors, presidents, kings, all are placed in positions of authority. Jesus was confronted with the idea that he could be crucified by a particular Roman leader. His response was, you wouldn't have that authority if my father hadn't given it to you. You see in Romans 13, when you get to the point where you're thinking about who to vote for, what kind of bills you're going to vote for and vote against and, and all that. There can be the temptation to say, well, God's already decided all that, therefore I won't, I won't vote. That is a massive misunderstanding and I think a belligerent attitude toward God's sovereignty. Scripture says clearly God has established all authority. No authority has been established except that which has been established by God. So in the end, we can look back and say that person in authority, no matter what role it is, whether it's a police officer or a political official or a parent or a school teacher or a crossing guard, that authority has been given to that person by the sovereign Father of heaven. We trust in him, but we also trust in him that he has given us the revealed things of the Lord to which we are to give our attention, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Our responsibility is to obey every word of God. This is the meshing place, uh, the spirit-filled understanding between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. There, there is no conflict in heaven. The conflict is in our puny minds. We think we have to understand everything, and therefore, when we don't understand everything, it can't possibly be right. So what do we do? We spin God's word. We obliterate God's word in an effort to make it fit our own puny way of thinking. Again, verse 18 says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You say, well, I thought the Jews killed Jesus. Well, not literally. Scripture tells us the Jews killed Jesus. Why does it say that? Because they were culpable, they were guilty, they were at fault. It was their manipulation that led to the Roman government saying, fine, I wash my hands, but sure, we'll let you make a trade. The robber, Barnabas, the one whose life was committed to manipulating and destroying and harnessing people for the sake of his own personal gain. Sure, you want to make that trade, we'll make that trade, we'll set Barnabas uh, Barabbas free, and not Barnabas, that's a totally different guy. <laughs> we'll set Barabbas free, and we will crucify Jesus Christ. He is the king of the Jews. They even went to him, they even went to the government to say, no, no, you printed it wrong, you got it wrong. We don't want it to say the king of the Jews. We want it to say that he said he was the king of the Jews. 
in an effort to further mock him in his false statement. And the government's response was, sorry, we've written what we've written. Why? Because that's what Scripture prescribed under God's authority. That's why. And so we see here this authority in the very act of his life being laid down. Was his life taken? Was he murdered? Was it sin? Was it the greatest travesty that mankind has ever known? Yes, 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 yes to all of those things. Man is completely responsible. And yet, God sovereignly decreed the death of Christ. And as we've said before, when you start thinking, there's absolutely no way that God could possibly be behind the difficulties in my life, I encourage you to take a few minutes and read 1 Peter. That'll completely change your mind, especially when you get to chapter 4, and Peter tells us explicitly that it is God's will that you suffer. Then I want to encourage you to think about the person and the life of Jesus Christ. There may be no two passages more mocked within Christianity than Acts 2 and Acts 4 because Acts 2.22 says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's sovereignty and man's culpability right there in the same breath. God foreordained, he predestined, he planned the death of Christ, and yet man is completely culpable, not just the Jews, not just the Romans, not just the Gentiles of that day, but you and me, completely guilty, every ounce of our being, every thread of who we are, guilty, and yet God sovereignly decreed it. And what is the response to this reality? It's either mockery from the unregenerate, person who despises God's word, God's truth, or it's a humbling response that says, I don't need to fully understand all that God is. He has not given us everything about him. He's told us at the end of John in chapter 21, were we to have everything there is to know about Jesus Christ, it would fill the planet and overflow. There's not enough room for it all to be contained And I think you probably know, but I want to read it as well from Acts 4, verse 26. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered uh, together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is God's sovereignty in all the details. We saw this with the blind man. Why was the blind man born blind? Because of his parents' sin? Because of his sin? Jesus says, no, neither. It was that God's works would be on display in him. Think of it. The person who rejects this theology wants nothing to do with God's works being on display. He wants his own works to be on display. That's man's unregenerate response to the truth about God's sovereignty. This is no secondary doctrine. It's 
critical. It's primary. Matthew 28, verse 18, you're very familiar with this passage. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You say, wait a minute, isn't he God in eternity past? Didn't he already have all authority? In his subordination to the Father, he subjected himself to the Father's will. He said, but wasn't his will already exactly the same as the Father's will? This is the beauty of the incarnation that when he took on flesh, he put himself in a limited position. He didn't stop being God. Don't ever think an inkling of a thought like that. But in his incarnation, while yet being fully God, was yet fully man. He took on flesh that did not restrain, it did not limit his deity. But he chose to limit himself by setting his deified prerogatives aside for a time. And by doing so, he enabled himself, he made himself a substitute. A substitute obeyer of God's word to the point of death, even death on a cross. Mark eleven twenty seven, And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The person who rejects the plainly obvious and plainly stated truth about Jesus cuts himself off from understanding and even having the knowledge of God's truth. Jesus wouldn't waste his time explaining what insolent hypocrites should already have known. He knew what was in their hearts, but then immediately began to speak to them in parables. You remember from Mark 4 why Jesus speaks in parables, so that those who don't understand God's word will be further exposed for their inability to understand God's word because of their willful hardness of heart. Now here's how that goes in this particular case in Mark 11 and 12. After he tells a parable about a man who sovereignly leased some land to some bad people who killed his servants who came to collect rent, and they beat up and shamed them, then he sent several more servants back, and they shame and even killed some of them, so he sent his son, fully expecting that they would respect his son. But they didn't. They killed his son as well. And while this parable pictures the many messengers God sent on his behalf that the people shamed and killed, they also did not respect his son. And they killed God's son. The hypocrites didn't understand the parable. Just like people today who disrespect and shame God's Son by rejecting what God's Word says about Him and create their own Jesus who fits their own liking, He turns them over to their hard heart and further hardens their hearts. When they didn't understand the parable, Jesus said, this is Mark 12, verse 10, Have you not read this scripture? 
Do you love how Jesus does that? Systematically dismantles the nonsense of the person who rejects his word. Have you not read the scripture? Certainly they had read it. They were Jews. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And this is what the false convert consistently does. They leave sound teaching. They leave truth. They reject plain and obvious truth, and they walk away. We saw this in John 5. We saw it in John 6. The disciples ultimately said it's hard. These truths are hard. Help us to understand these truths. But the false disciples called it insanity. They said it was impossible to understand, and they walked away. Jesus taught with authority to those who rejected his authority, and by rejecting his authority, they specifically rejected the truth of his word. Mark 1.21 says, And they came into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I was listening to a local pastor about whom I've been hearing much recently. I thought, maybe I'll take a listen myself just out of curiosity. And I was stunned by the non-authoritative approach, the nonsense that went on in the worship service before this man stood up to really make a mockery of God's word. No exegesis, no legitimate exposition, but only application. You watch for this. We've recommended to you books that help you understand the difference between expository preaching and feigned expository preaching. Feigned expository preaching is always focused on application. It's all it's ever about. This is what this means in your life today. Even though it has absolutely nothing to do with you, what you should learn from a passage of Scripture that teaches truth is how to honor Christ. And you can learn from the mistakes of others, but you've got to learn the point of the text first. And when a guy just jumps to these points about application for you, what that means for how you take care of your car or your dog or whatever else, he's completely missed the point of the passage. It's got to be about the intent of the author. That's what it's got to be about. Jesus lays down his life and he takes it up, not only by his own authority, but in his incarnation, his incarnate obedience to the Father. So it's not just about his authority, it's his obedience to the Lord. Listen to this from Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's predestined plan, and yet as you watch it unfold, Jesus gains favor with his Father by displaying obedience to his Father, even to the point of death, death on a cross. And the point of this passage is that you and I are to have the exact same attitude. Now think of it. Those who do not believe in God's sovereignty display nothing of this mindset. They're all about self. All about self, self-serving, doing whatever it takes to make themselves feel better. Well, the first sub-point here is that he lays down his life and raises it up for the Father. And this is a critical doctrine, that he died for Jesus. An artist years ago sang a song that included the phrase, Christ died for God. And he did. He did. He died to satisfy the wrath of the Father. That was the Father's plan. Verse 17, if you go back with me there, says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Seems like conditional love, doesn't it? Not at all. Because elsewhere in Scripture you see the equal an uninterrupted love between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, which is a perfect love, never interrupted. But this is a further display of the Father's love in his Son's human, Spirit-filled obedience. Be careful the person that puts so much emphasis on the idea that your relationship with God is not at all damaged when you disobey him. It is. On the other hand, when you obey him, you experience further blessing from him. It's a spiritual reality that you see throughout the Scripture, and yet you're not earning anything from God. You're trusting in what Christ accomplished. That's what displays the favor of God. That's what Christ did when he went to the cross. When Christ obeyed him in every way, he displayed the reality that he subjected himself to the Father's plan in his subordination to him, his willful subordination to him. We refer to this as his active obedience, and you need his active obedience. It's a critical part of the gospel. It's a critical part of the gospel that he obeyed every word of the Father. John 4.34 says, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. That's my will. That's my food. That's what I live off of. That's what I thrive off of. That's what nourishes me. That's what should nourish you and me. That the will of the Father would be our food. This is the statement Jesus made about himself. That's why he did what he did. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples all followed him. When he arrived at that place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. And see, those who limit the person of Jesus, who de-deify him, who extract his deity from him, say, well, he's just a man. Look, don't you see it? You 
You can't miss it in John 5, John 6. You can't miss it, miss it throughout the book of John that he is God. You remember that he said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He's declaring the reality that if you do not believe in his deity, you are not a Christian. It's not a secondary issue. It's not something you figure out later. A person must know that Jesus is God to come to true faith in him. He says here, uh, Luke twenty-two forty-three. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. He, in his obedience, in his, will, his willingness to discipline himself, to pray through the night, called you and me to do the same thing. You don't need to pray through the night every night. In fact, don't do that. But there does need to be a regular time of disciplined prayer in your life. This is what he calls disciples to do. You see, his obedience, and he in his obedience calls you and me to obedience. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. It ought to be befuddling to you when someone with whom you have been striving with regard to what it means to be a Christian says, well, yeah, I don't do any of that stuff, but that's not my fault. That's because of this guy or that guy or whoever else. He blames his disobedience systematically on other people. It's certainly somebody else's fault. Jesus makes it clear. The person who does not obey him sits currently under the wrath of God. As Jesus was obedient to his Father, those who are in him, those who abide in him, obey him. Don't let that slip away. That's of critical importance. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Every last sheep that the Father planned and predetermined to give to the Son will come unto him. He will come unto him. So the one good shepherd, by his authority and obedience, lays down his life and raises it up for the Father, but he also lays down his life and raises it up for the sheep. John 10, 11 says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We pointed out last week, he doesn't say he lays down his life for anyone else. He doesn't lay his life down for the goats. He lays it down for the sheep. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So just as true as it is that the Father loves the Son, and just as true as it is that the Son loves 
the Father. It is also true that the Son died for the sheep. In his death for the sheep, there was no roll of the dice. There was no gambling. His blood applied efficaciously to every single sheep. Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's whom he will save, his people. Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who are the many? The sheep. Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. For whom? Many. John 10, 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? See, this is the person that mocks God's word. When are you going to tell us? And Jesus one more time says, I've already told you multiple times. This is how these conversations go. There's a There's a disinterest in anything rational and a willingness to be belligerent against truth, pretending that they haven't heard the truth, pretending that they haven't rejected the truth. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. It's not the first time he says this. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then in Romans 5, verse 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There is nothing conditional about this. Christ died for the elect. And when he did, he produced reconciliation. That's what was established on the cross. So he not only by his authority and obedience laid down his life and raised it up for the Father, but he also did so for the sheep. Point number three this morning, the one good shepherd by his word divides. And there is no doubt that this truth up to this point has done that to an extensive degree. This is hard truth. This is not the kind of truth that you hear in your standard Southern Baptist church. And there are a lot of really solid Southern Baptist churches. But you won't typically hear this truth with any degree of significance in a church that's simply trying to increase the numbers. 
Because it is at this point when you see this truth that Jesus died for the sheep that those who reject the truth begin to peel away. The one good shepherd by his word divides. Verse 19 says, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Well, no kidding. Nearly every time Jesus spoke publicly, there was some sort of difficulty at the very least going on amongst the spiritual leaders. But now what's happening is there's a division being created. Jesus is beginning to save some of the leaders. Somewhere along the line, he saved Nicodemus. But here you have Jewish leaders at the very least showing a willingness to be honest about what's right before them. It's the hardness of the heart of the Pharisees who created lies about Jesus in the back room in an effort to prevent the people from seeing the truth. They saw the truth. They chose to reject the truth. And by rejecting the truth, they would need to develop some credibility for themselves by discrediting him. That's why lies were told about him in that day. That's why people redefine Jesus today. They don't like the Jesus of the Bible. 1 John 2 verse 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Please, beloved, please, please, I plead with you. For those of you who have significantly adjacent relationships to false converts, please stop affirming their false conversion by not speaking up. At some point, out of love for Christ and love for the Father and love for those people and love for the church, it's critical that you point out that a person does not obey the word of God. This is black and white. The Apostle John is black and white, and here he gets as black and white as it can be. We know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Hebrews 4.12 talks about this separating reality of the word of God, the penetrating work that the word does. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. He's speaking as a pastor to a large group of people in the book of Hebrews, pointing out the fact that there are those who continue in their hard-heartedness pretending to be in the faith. And so he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Why? So that they would be exposed, so that they would come to know the Lord. For the word of God, this is the context of that passage that you probably have memorized. For this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from, its, from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And you know well that those who feign Christianity do everything they can to twist the word of God to fit their own stylized pseudo-faith. They salve their conscience by listening to teachers who smooth it over. They give them cotton candy at best, but many times they, many times they give them a sedative 
by how they teach. Puts people to sleep. Makes them feel good about this or that. Just do better. Just have a better life. Just do the right thing. Nothing about legitimate exposure of the condition of the soul into which the person is born. Typically, the person who is unwilling to acknowledge the condition into which he was born wants nothing to do with the possibility that it was actually Christ that saved him. He chose Christ. That's what that person will declare. Luke 12, 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? Is that what you think he's asking? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In Ephesians 6, 13, Paul says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And friends, I would again plead with you, if you're in proximity to someone who's dancing with the devil and refusing to address the way things Paul calls us to address them, to put on the full armor of God, and for them once or twice a month in a church service ought to do it. It's critical that you put on the full armor of God, not just for the sake of your own spiritual protection, but for the sake of those that you love. For the sake of those that you love, that you would, in fact, wear the helmet of salvation, in other words, showing that you're a Christian, that you would bear the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, which divides households, divides believers from unbelievers. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 really lays it out. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot discern them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. This is the illumination of the mind that God grants to those in whom the Spirit dwells. Well, letter A, we'll go through these very quickly. The one good shepherd by his word divides is dismissed, disbelieved, and slandered. Verse 20, many of them said he has a demon, is insane. Why listen to him? You remember from John 7, 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he's a good man. Others said, no, he is a le he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Mark 3, 20, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is Mary and his brothers. John 9, 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, 
What do you say about him since he has opened, our, opened your eyes? He said he's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them. John 8, 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. He is dismissed, disbelieved, and slandered. In our ear, it's most often by those who pretend to know him. They redefine him on their own terms. Letter B, the one good shepherd by his word divides, is heard, and believed. There are those who, in this division process, hear the word and believe it. Verse 21 says, Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? John 9, 8 says, The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the man. You people know me. I grew up here. And this is how saving faith begins to display itself with theological honesty. The person who will finally come clean on his own condition is the person who is finally coming clean on the distinction between him and Jesus. Rather than pretending that he could accomplish what only Jesus accomplished. John 9.30, he answered the man, why this is an amazing thing. You do not even know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And then, as you know, they dismissed him. They cast him out. But there were those who heard reality and believed reality. We don't know that they're saved in this moment. We know that they're being theologically honest about what's going on around them, no longer willfully rejecting the word of God, no longer willfully rejecting what's clearly there no longer dismissing and excusing their sin, their disobedience, their lack of faithfulness. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. In John 15, which again separates, or I should say shows the separation between those who are in him and who are not. Jesus says, I'm the true vine and the Father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word of God that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine 
Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Today, those who hear and listen to his voice are those who obey his commands. And friends, as Christians grow in maturity, this ought to be, in fact, it is obvious who is obeying the commands of the Lord and who isn't. And for you and I, as we obey the commands of the Lord, one of the commands that we are to obey is a willingness to confront those who reject truth, who don't obey the word, who live in disobedience to the, disobedience to the word. And that's the act of love that the one true shepherd shows to us in Matthew 18, where he leaves the 99 to go get the one wayward believer. It's an act of love. We've seen the one good shepherd by his voice leads and saves all the sheep. He will be heard and followed. By his authority and obedience, he lays down his life and raises it up for the Father. He lays down his life and raises it up for the sheep. And the one good shepherd by his word divides. And while he divides, he is dismissed, disbelieved, and slandered. But he's also heard and believed. So my charge to you and to myself this morning is that we hear and we believe his word and we obey him, and we walk faithfully with him, and we plead with him to give us the privilege to be involved in the finding of the lost sheep, that they too would obey, hear his voice, and follow him into obedience and glorify him forever. Father, we are immeasurably grateful for what your son has accomplished on our behalf. We ask that you would do a great work even in us now as we sing to you, that you would experience the joy of seeing our joy being made complete as we worship the Savior. It's in the shepherd's name that we pray. Amen.